attitudes towards psychedelic medicines have been shifting in recent years. In June 2023, the FDA published draft guidance on research involving psychedelic agents, which includes recommendations for scientists and drug sponsors. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Mason Marks, a professor at the Florida State University College of Law and the Senior Fellow and Project Lead of the Project on Psychedelics Law and Regulation at the Petrie Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. Professor Marks has co-authored a perspective article about FDA evaluation of psychedelic medicine. Professor Marks, what types of agents fit under the umbrella of psychedelic medicines and how do they work? So they're a pretty diverse class of substances. Many of them are naturally occurring. They're produced by plants, fungi, and even animals around the world. Some are native to North America, Mexico, South America, Europe, even parts of Asia like India, for example. And many of those substances have been used by indigenous communities around the world for hundreds, if not thousands of years. There are also many psychedelics that are synthetic, and they were produced for the first time in the late 19th century or early 20th century. And these are substances like lysergic acid diethylamide or LSD or MDMA, ketamine as well. Some of those substances like MDMA and ketamine are not always considered to be psychedelics because they act through a different mechanism. These substances that we consider classic psychedelics, whether they're synthetic or naturally derived, tend to act through the serotonin 5-HT receptors. And the non-classic psychedelics like MDMA or ketamine, they act through a different mechanism of action. But some consider them psychedelics, include that in that group, because they do exhibit some psychedelic-like effects. And how has the United States historically regulated all these agents? So that's a complicated question. For most of our history, these substances were entirely unregulated, and Western scientists discovered them from indigenous communities, in many cases, in the mid-20th century. So for example, there were scientists that traveled to Mexico and learned of the psychedelic mushrooms that are native to the region, and they brought them back to the United States. And this really triggered significant scientific interest, not only in psilocybin, but other psychedelics like LSD. So there were literally hundreds, if not at least a thousand scientific studies published on psychedelics by the medical community in the 50s and 60s. And that was perfectly legal. There was very little regulation. Of course, around that time, particularly in the 60s, psychedelics became associated with the countercultural movement and opposition to the Vietnam War. And they also were lumped in with other substances like barbiturates and stimulants like amphetamines, drugs that came to be thought of as drugs of abuse. And so due to sort of a cultural backlash, not only against psychedelics, but against those other, quote, drugs of abuse, they were largely prohibited in the United States in the 1960s. And then in 1970, with the enactment by Congress of the Controlled Substances Act, they became categorized in Schedule One 
of the controlled substances list, which is the most restrictive category. And most research on the substances then came to a halt in the 1970s. There was some that continued into the late 70s, which largely relied on existing drug supply of LSD, for example. But after that, psychedelic research was effectively dormant until in the early 90s and the early 2000s, there was a sort of resurgence of psychedelic research, which was really a trickle. But in the past couple decades, and particularly in the last five to 10 years, that trickle has really brought into a stream of research that is quite exciting in terms of what it could offer, not only to the field of psychiatry, but potentially other areas of medicine. What changed in those years to prompt the FDA now to develop guidance on studying psychedelics? And how are the drugs being investigated and for what conditions are they being investigated? So there was a group of people in the 90s and early 2000s that were able to convince the FDA to grant them permission to reinitiate this type of research. And some of the results of those early trials were quite intriguing. There was some research, for example, that came out of Johns Hopkins University in using psilocybin in end-of-life care, where people with serious or terminal diagnoses were given psilocybin and they experienced a significant reduction in anxiety and depression associated with their own mortality. And scientists were able to use those early results to generate support both within the FDA and other agencies, as well as gather funding from philanthropists because public funding was not available for research on psychedelics for the most part. And so much of the funding had to come from private donors. And so in the past 10 years or so, we've really seen a lot of increased media coverage of psychedelics. There's been decreased stigmatization of these substances. So there's sort of a cultural and societal shift. It used to be just five or 10 years ago, some researchers, some scientists, and certainly many physicians would be hesitant to even mention psychedelics privately, let alone publicly, due to potential backlash and the stigma associated with them. So it's been a very gradual, subtle change that really picked up dramatically since about 2017 or so. There have been some very influential articles published by people like Michael Pollan, who published an article in The New Yorker called The Trip Treatment and a subsequent book, How to Change Your Mind, that certainly played a large role. Right now, the evidence is farthest along for utilizing psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. And there's a company called Compass Pathways Limited that recently commenced phase three clinical trials for that indication and could potentially gain FDA approval if it's successful within the next few years by 2027 or so. And the other leading indication is for post-traumatic stress disorder utilizing MDMA. And the company that is sponsoring that research is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS. And they recently completed a confirmatory phase three trial and anticipate submitting their new drug application this year and anticipate possible FDA approval as early as next year. So treatment-resistant depression utilizing psilocybin and PTSD treatment using MDMA are the farthest along in the FDA approval pipeline 
But there are many other exciting potential indications, for example, in the treatment of substance use conditions, including alcohol use disorders and smoking cessation, as well as uh, pain-related conditions like cluster headaches or migraines. You say in your perspective article that you believe that some components of the FDA's guidance are well-founded and that others may be contentious. So first, what recommendations do you think the agency got right? I think it's really important to appreciate the historical importance of this guidance. It's really a landmark piece of guidance from the FDA, which for many years has avoided really weighing in in a public way on this topic. And I think a lot of this guidance is targeted potentially at scientists and researchers who don't know a lot about psychedelics because they've been stigmatized for so many years. And so a lot of the guidance is not necessarily very surprising. It's fairly routine. Things like requiring the manufacturers to provide detailed information on the chemistry and manufacturing of the psychedelic drug products and that they should be manufactured in compliance with good manufacturing practices, for example. So a lot of the guidance is not very surprising. There are some things there that are unique to psychedelics, again, that are fairly well-reasoned. For instance, there is a hypothesis that classic psychedelics, which are agonists of the serotonin 5-HT2B receptors, could potentially cause a form of valvulopathy, a thickening of the mitral valve leaflets that has been observed with other drugs that act upon that receptor. It has been theorized, but has not yet been proven for psychedelics. But out of an abundance of caution, the FDA recommends that in animal studies, researchers perform a microscopic examination of the heart tissue to look for potential signs of valvulopathy. So that is another example of a good recommendation. And then in terms of actual clinical trials, if a psychedelic is going to be administered chronically or over an extended period, and many trials to date have not, they will often dispense a psychedelic anywhere from one to three times during a particular trial. So they're not typically provided over an extended period of time, but the FDA says that if they are, then people with known valvulopathy or pulmonary hypertension should likely be excluded from those trials. There should be baseline and follow-up echocardiography performed as well as a safety precaution. And then which of the FDA's recommendations do you think deserve greater scrutiny? There are primarily three that we write about in the perspective article. And that, of course, is myself and my co-author, Professor Glenn Cohen of the Petrie Flom Center at Harvard Law School. And one of them relates to the fact that there is often psychological support or psychotherapy offered to participants in psychedelic clinical trials. And so that can take many different forms. It could be a very passive sort of hands-off role where someone is merely monitoring the participant while they experience the effects of the psychedelic. It could also be much more of an intervention where someone is actually performing some version of psychotherapy during that administration session. There are also frequently preparatory sessions that occur before the drugs administration and what are called integration sessions that occur afterwards. And the FDA's guidance provoked some criticism from 
psychedelic practitioners and researchers because it stated that the role of that psychological support is not well characterized. And many people believe that it's essential to the safety of research participants, as well as to the treatment benefits. And we argue in the perspective that it's not necessarily that the FDA has misinterpreted the role or the importance of psychological support, as some people have alleged, for example, in comments submitted to the FDA in response to this guidance document. We take the position that the FDA is really highlighting the fact that there really hasn't been a lot of research comparing different types of psychological support or comparing the administration of psychedelics with psychological support and without. And so this isn't so much of a criticism in this particular case, but we think it's an area worth significantly more discussion. And we draw an analogy to medical treatments for opioid use disorders. And that is something where the FDA recently weighed in and said, in the past, people have been required to receive counseling or psychological support alongside with these treatments for opioid use disorder. But sometimes cost or other factors make it impractical or impossible for them to receive that psychological support. And we acknowledge that psychedelics are, of course, very different than treatments for substance use disorders. But we think the same kind of balancing needs to occur. There may be instances where some kind of psychological support is helpful or important and should be offered, but there might also be cases in which it's not practical for people to receive it. And so there needs to be a sort of balancing that occurs. Are they better off still receiving the psychedelic medicine, even though the psychological support may be limited or minimal? Or should it be required in all circumstances? So it's a little more complicated, perhaps, than both the FDA and some of the people who have criticized this guidance make it out to be. Finally, if the FDA ultimately approves some of these psychedelic agents, what challenges do you foresee in incorporating them into healthcare? Well, one of the challenges relates to another criticism that we provide in the perspective article, or I wouldn't call it a criticism, more of a point of feedback. There is a lot of stigma that remains against these substances, despite the enthusiasm that is growing. And I can tie this back to one of our comments in the perspective regarding the reporting of adverse events. The FDA guidance suggests that any kind of subjective experience that is associated with the psychedelic should be reported as an abuse-related adverse event. So these would be subjective experiences like mood or cognitive changes, hallucinations, or what some people describe as mystical type experiences. And so under the guidance, the FDA suggests that scientists report those events as adverse events or adverse events that are related to abuse potential. And we argue that that is unwarranted and could perhaps even be misguided because it's really not known what role those subjective experiences play in the therapeutic process. Some people believe that those experiences are an essential part of receiving the therapeutic benefit. So we suggest that perhaps they 
should be defined as side effects rather than adverse events. And if it is shown eventually that they are crucial to the benefits of these substances, then perhaps they shouldn't even be referred to as side effects, but should just be referred to as an important part of the therapeutic mechanism. And I bring this up in response to your question because I think that a big challenge of integrating these substances into mainstream healthcare is the stigma that remains. And defining these subjective experiences, which may very well play an important role in the therapeutic process, defining them as adverse events from the outset, it could potentially contribute to that stigma. It could also produce bias in the studies. For example, if researchers tell participants at the outset, you may experience adverse events like a mystical experience or a feeling of intense connection to other people or the world around you, then participants might be primed to view those as undesirable or even harmful aspects of the experience, even though they are extremely common and they're typically mild and very time-limited. So the stigma and how these substances are framed, of course, it's important to be honest and thorough about discussing risks, but the way that they are framed and described can create challenges for integrating them into conventional healthcare. Thank you, Professor Marks. 